0: Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say come and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their witness they had borne. They cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given each a white robe, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of whom who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand?
1: Thank you very much, Kirsty. Now, Revelation. Uh, Johnny has got us going with a great start, uh, preaching through chapters one, four, and five, and in Summerlink, and in small groups, we've been looking at the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. And by popular demand and by the minister's persuasion, we're going to carry on in Revelation. One of the important things that elders are responsible for in a church is ensuring that the Word of God is preached. It's a very important thing. Nothing else is preached but the Word of God. But elders are also responsible for discerning under God Why is it that this congregation needs this particular book at this particular time in its life? And we feel that Revelation, along with Romans in our small groups, and James and 1 Samuel is a good diet for us to give us the food that we need as a church in this particular season in our life as a church in what is happening in the world. Now, Revelation will challenge us, it will scare us, but most of all, as God's people in a local church, which is fragile, like all other local churches, Revelation will encourage us, steady us, and excite us, and tell us what is going to happen before the Lord Jesus comes again. Now, one of the reasons that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Bible, why not just one? They all tell the same facts. They all are historical eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, and teaching, and death, and resurrection. But the four are there to complement one another. And the picture we have of the Lord Jesus is richer for the four. Now, in the book of Revelation, and uh, after the 6.30 service tonight, a few of us are going to stay a little longer, I'm going to record another talk, which is uh, an overview of the whole book. I don't want to do that now in the sermon. That'll go up uh, later. And You might find that interesting just to see the structure of the whole book. But one thing that happens in Revelation is that it gives us God's view, or Jesus' view, of history from the period of his resurrection to his return. We get an overview of history. Jesus, inspiring the apostle John, is telling John what will happen in the future. Now, we are still part of that future because Jesus has not yet returned. And that overview of history doesn't happen in the book of Revelation just once. We get it three times. So like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of the same events that complement one another. In Revelation, we get what's called the seven seals. Kirsty read the first half of that. Then we get seven trumpets. Then we get seven bowls of God's wrath. And each of these tells the about the same period of history from the resurrection of Jesus Christ until his return. Now, as I said, uh, the detail of the structure and how the book works uh, will go up on YouTube uh, tonight along with this talk. Tonight, we're looking at the first of these overviews of history, God's Perspective. God's true, faultless, faithful, trustworthy description of what we should expect in the period between Jesus' resurrection and his return. And in each of these cycles of seven, in each of these dramas unfolded, there is a a massive question. For us to ponder. Now, you'll see on the service sheet that uh, you can access at the bottom of the YouTube channel if you're watching, or the website, or if you're here in church on your seats, there's a simple structure. Now, the first point I've got on the sheet is the world under judgment, and that's verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 8 describe the opening of the first four seals. And as we uh, heard that read, you will have observed a repeated pattern in terms of content, of language, and structure as each of the first four seals are opened. With the opening of each seal, a horse and a rider is described. Now, these four horses and their riders are sometimes referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now you know where they're from. And it's clear in these pictures, and Revelation requires us to hear. We're so used to hearing when it comes to God's Word. It also requires us to see. In our minds, to hear, to see, to feel, to experience. Think of that storm the other night. What a godsend that was to Revelation. You see it, you hear it, it arrests all your senses. These four horsemen in the first four seals. Give us a unified picture or impression of what? Of the world in which we live. Now, the world in which we live, whether at the time this revelation was first given, it was first given to the apostle John in the first century, who was in exile because of persecution of the church. He was on the island of Patmos. Whether in John's time, as he looked out on his world... Whether in our time, or whether in the future before Jesus returns, this is what the world in which we live is like. So go home and go on to whatever media platform you access news from, and you will read of the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding through the world. Now, it's not going to call it that, but that's what's going on. First, verses 1 and 2, a white horse. Its rider holding a bow symbolizing conquest. He rides out bent on conquest. Now, it's not hard to see that in the world. For example, in Belarus at the moment terrible stuff going on there. When the second seal is open, verses 3 to 4, we see a bright red, literally a fiery red horse. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This horse and its rider symbolizes war and bloodshed. Not a particular war, not a particular example of bloodshed, but right through history. The next rider, verses 5 to 6, is on a black horse. This rider brings economic hardship to the world. He is pictured in verses 5 and 6 as holding a pair of scales in his hand. His principle, though, of distribution Economic distribution is unfair and unjust. A quart of wheat for a denarius, a denarius is a day's wage, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. That is meant to illustrate economic hardship, unfair distribution and exploitation. It is not hard to see that in the world, and through history. We saw it even with the exam results issue over the past fortnight. And the fourth horseman, verses 7 to 8, is death, riding a pale horse. The word translated pale is the color of decaying or rotting flesh. It is a horrible picture. It is a ghastly picture. It's meant to conjure up as I describe it, explaining John's words that are Jesus' words, a picture in your minds of decay and death. The second half of verse 8 is a summary of the activities of all four horses and their riders. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is the world in which we live, a world of conquest, of war, of bloodshed, of economic hardship, of disease, and of death as ever-present realities." Now, if I was to say that in normal times, whatever that means, we would agree. But when the Bible describes what is going on at times like we are living through, it's just so vivid and so evidently true. Now, big question here. What do we make of the fact that that these four horses are summoned or called forth into the world by the living creatures. The living creatures in Revelation are God's angels or his agents. They're good beings, good guys, if you like. So what are they doing summoning the horsemen of the apocalypse? Just look at verse 1. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come, calling out that horse. And again, verse 3. I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came that horse into the world. And verse 5 and verse 7. It is saying that these horsemen, representing conquest, war, and bloodshed, economic hardship, and death, are called out into the world at God's command. Is that what it's saying? Yes, that is exactly what it's saying. That's the plain, plain reading and meaning of this. And the point is that the world in which we live, where that stuff happens, is a world under the judgment of God. Not a particular narrow point in history under God's judgment, but the whole of human history. Because of humanity's rebellion against God, humanity is under judgment. We will all die. And the earth, the world in which we live, is fallen. It is cursed. It is broken. It is dangerous. And God has given over humanity and given over the world where we live to his judgment. It is cursed. It is the language of Romans 1. Sin which is deeply grievous to God and his judgment on sinful humanity is not only in our hearts as sinful humans, but experienced by us in the world in which we live. So while we pray with all our hearts that these global issues described here in Revelation are eased, while we pray with all our hearts for those who are working hard to do that, we should not be surprised and nor should we ever find ourselves thinking that we will eliminate war and bloodshed and sickness and death until Jesus comes again. Here's something, though, to steady us as we contemplate this. God has given over this world. God has cursed this world. It is under judgment. God is not content with this world. He will renew this earth. But the judgment of God, evil in the world, whatever manifestation it takes, while permitted by God, is... Controlled or limited by the sovereignty of God to the extent that one day it will all end. But he limits it. Which is why we can pray that he will bring things to an end because he is sovereign over all things. Notice that when he bids these horses come, they are given authority verse 2 a crown was given to him verse 4 its rider was permitted the end of verse 4 he was given a great sword and the summary in the second half of verse 8 they were given authority the word given is key in apocalyptic literature indeed in the whole of the bible god gives and takes away human power and authority the great kingdoms and empires of world history come and go. Maybe, and we must be super careful in using revelation to this end, it is not for us to speculate, maybe we are living in human history on the cusp of the domination of the globe by China as the silk roads are opened up. Maybe that's all been halted by a virus. We don't know. But we know that God knows. God gives. God takes away. And that reins with which he holds on to the muzzle of the horse, he never loses grip. The reins never break. Satan never evades God's grip of his coattails. He is never off that leash. And that is a mighty important and comforting thing to remember. God is sovereign over good. And that God is sovereign over evil. God is sovereign over all things. Now, to verses 9 to 11, which I've described as the persecuted church, one key feature of the world in which we live, a world in rebellion against God, is the persecution, the oppression experienced by God's people. Remember that the book of Revelation was written to encourage persecuted Christians. With the opening of the fifth seal, verses 9 to 11, we have a shift in perspective in this unfolding drama. The picture here is of Christian martyrs who had been slain, verse 9, for or because of the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Notice the reason for persecution. Whatever scale that persecution is, The reason for persecution is a commitment to the word of God and the speaking of the gospel. Where are the souls of those who have been martyred? Verse 9, they are under the altar. Verse 11, wearing white robes. In other words, they are under the protection of the lamb who was sacrificed. In heaven, which is where souls go when they die, Their souls are kept and protected. But even in heaven they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? God's answer, verse 11, they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God's purposes are not yet fulfilled and the martyrs cry out their souls in heaven How long, Lord Jesus, till you come? And God says, rest a little more. Why? Because his gospel has not yet gone to the ends of the earth. Because there are more people in this city of Edinburgh that he wants to bring into his kingdom. But the cry of the martyr, how long, reminds us that the bringing in of these people is not ever without cost and hardship. And if the church in the West is about to enter one of the hardest periods of its life, which it may well be, it was hard enough before COVID, maybe God will, through all of that, bring a resurgence and a renewal and zeal and more church plants and more training. More conversions. And it should be of no surprise to us at all if that comes with hardship and cost and struggle and face masks and social distancing and all that stuff. The opening of the sixth seal. Verses 12 to 17. The description here is of the great day of wrath. Judgment day at the end of history. Now, judgment day. Well, there was a day Jesus was born. It was a day. There was a day Jesus died on Calvary. There was a day... When he rose from the dead, there was a day he went back to his father. And there is coming a day when he returns to bring a final judgment on all those who have rejected the salvation offered to them in Jesus. What will that day be like? My Bible commentary, one of them said, use an illustration of a storm, which is tough if you're in Scotland. We moan about our weather. It's just dull, our weather. It's not dramatic, apart from this week. What did we do? We all got up, whatever time it was, we pulled back the curtains and we thought, goodness me, this is serious. And yet that wasn't a serious storm. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black, as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth and so on. Verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and the rock, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Bury us alive so that we do not need to face the wrath of the Lamb. One of the great lies that folk comfort themselves with is that death is the end. Death is the beginning of eternity. And on that day when Jesus returns, countless millions of souls resurrected in their bodies, those who are living will cry out to God, bury us alive, So that we do not need to face the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand it? On judgment day all those who have not believed in Jesus, whoever they are will face the wrath of God. It is a frightening sight. It is a warning it is clarity for the Christian cuts through all the fuzz this is what will happen how do we know that day will come because for centuries God's people longed for a Messiah to be born And all these centuries from Malachi to Matthew, how long, O Lord? And he was born in a stable. And he died on a cross. And he rose from the dead. And 300-odd prophecies written centuries before were fulfilled in detail to the letter. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eyewitness testimonies of all that happened. The last 2,000 years have seen the global expansion of the church. The most advanced, has been in the last 300 years as the gospel has gone to the world. The 20th century saw more Christian martyrs than the 19 previous centuries combined. There is overwhelming evidence that he is coming. The world cannot fix its broken soul we cannot end war or bloodshed. We will not beat disease. We will beat diseases, but we will not eliminate disease and death. The mortality rate will always, always, always be 100% until the Lord Jesus comes and death is no more. And our world is crying that out. And Christians like never before must speak that out. What do these verses in Revelation 6, verses 12, 13, so on, and remind you of? I wonder, well, they do remind us of this. The darkness, the earthquake, the split sky when Jesus hung on his cross. For the day of wrath happens twice in human history. It happens on the last day when Jesus comes again. But it happened at Calvary so that those who turn to Jesus can stand the wrath of God on the last day. Listen to the description of Jesus' death. Darkness was over the whole land. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Listen to Revelation's description of the last day. Darkness over the whole earth. The earth shook and the rocks split. And if... The return of Jesus on the last day to judge all who have rejected him is shocking and frightening, which it is. And the other picture in the Bible, and you need both pictures, not one or the other, is of a man who is the Son of God with his nail-pierced hands. Bearing the wrath of God so that we need not. Now that's the real gospel. Not the cross without Judgment Day. Not the Judgment Day without the cross. Both. So that people flee to Christ. While they can. Now, for the last bit of our time, what's the answer to the question at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? Now, I want us to answer this not by me explaining all the details of Revelation 7. I'll do a little bit of that. But the answer is not... Those people who are described here, the answer is either me or not me. The answer is you or not you. For those of you listening online, who could stand the wrath of God? You or not? Not them, you or not. Some of you will remember a man called John Harker. Anyone remember him? Some nods. John was converted probably 16 years ago or something like that. He was an angry man. But in glory now. He used to come into church in a wheelchair. He had MS, and his hands would be like this—they'd be clenched. Occasionally, he would shout out. You never do. Don't ever do that. Sheer antagonism. And halfway through a sermon on Revelation 6 and 7, off the back of that question, who can stand? He was converted to Christ. And after that, he got up out of his wheelchair, not miraculously healed, just all the tension and the the, the wound upness in his body had gone. A year later, he got a brain tumor and he died. But he is with Jesus for all eternity. Chapter 7 is the answer to the question, who can stand? After this, read with me, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Um, just look on to verse 9. After this I looked. Notice that's Revelation. Jay pointed this out to me. Between the services, that's a good reason to have four services on a Sunday. You get four shots at it, or two. He heard the number of the sealed 144,000 and then he saw them. This great multitude from every tribe and nation and language of the earth. Can you see yourself there? Who is there? End of verse three, the servants of our God. Verse four, the number of the sealed 144,000. Verse 9, a great multitude that no one could count. These are all referring to the same group of people. That's how apocalyptic literature works. Put together in your mind these two images. Shut your eyes, because you're meant to think and listen and see. Put together in your mind 144,000. Think of that number. And then... Alongside that, the picture of a great multitude that no one could count, side by side, one, four, four thousand, and the great, great multitude that you cannot count. What do these two images side by side convey? They convey vastness and exactness. It's vast. But every single name is known to God. There's not a vague number in the new creation. There's a perfect number. Of all those who have trusted in Jesus, are you one of them? How do you know? Because you plead one thing alone the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb who bore God's wrath for you. And what's the response? Verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are words that are crying out to be sung by believers. Only Scott can sing them. You can sing them at home. That we can all sing them with our lips, but not sing them in our hearts. That's what matters. Looking at this great and glorious vision, can we sing salvation belongs to our God as a saved sinner who sits on the throne at their lamb? What do we do? Verse 11, in our hearts, they fell on their faces before the throne, and worship God saying, Amen, blessing, and honor, and glory, and thanks. When you've nothing to say to God because you're dumbstruck by one of these visions, well, just sing a song. Praise his name. And these wonderful words, which, like all Bible words, have extraordinary power when they are in their Bible context chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. Therefore thee, they is made up of lots of yous. Therefore you and me. We can know for sure because we plead one thing alone, the blood of Jesus. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And now another world. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb still with his scars in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and one of the most powerful lines in the Bible that can be so sentimentalized it doesn't mean anything unless you are crying. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, chapter 8 and verse 1, there was silence. Loving Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have revealed what is going to happen in your word. We are not left confused. We are not left perplexed. You have come. You have died. You have risen. You have ascended to God. You are with him at the throne and you will return a final and eternal judgment and all those who have not turned to you for salvation will live for eternity under your perpetual wrath. And yet, to every human being, there is an answer to that question, who can stand? The answer is those who have turned to Jesus and accepted the forgiveness that he offers because he bore our wrath on his cross. And our Father, we pray that in these difficult times for the church, You would quicken us, enliven us, and inspire us to proclaim what is going to happen in the world and to proclaim Jesus as the answer to every human question. And we pray, Lord, as we close, for those on our hearts whom we love, whom we live with, whom we long to be saved. Lord Jesus, please open their hearts. Enable them to flee to you now that they need not flee from you then. Hear this prayer we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.